Hello and welcome to China Econ Talk. I'm your host, Jordan Schneider. Huawei, unfairly maligned or rightly feared? Tech supply chains running through China, a marvel of 21st century globalization or a dangerous oversight on the part of U.S. tech firms and the federal government? For answers to these questions and more, we turn today to Nick Weaver, researcher at the International Computer Science Institute and lecturer at UC Berkeley. Nick, welcome to China Econ Talk. Thank you for having me. So can we start off talking about uh, how you first started writing about issues related to China and technology? Well, one of the things I tend to do these days is a lot of writing for the policy crowd, trying to explain some of the technological implications. And one of the current big issues is supply chain security. So I started writing for the non-technical audience, explainers on how supply chain attacks work, uh, what are particular vulnerabilities, and why, for example, Kaspersky and Huawei type equipment may be fine for normal purposes but not necessarily for critical infrastructure. And, and how have you found the, the challenges and opportunities, I guess, writing for a policy audience as opposed to uh, more academic or peers or just folks who, who live and breathe the tech-based side of things? I think it's uh, fun because it's effectively a translation role. So I have to both make sure I understand the issues as well as explain them to others. And since my day job is lecturer, I like talking and explaining things. Uh, do you think there's a need for more people like you or what other or what advice would you have for folks trying to do this kind of translation role? I mean, this is, I think, is, a, is something that a lot of kind of China specialists, experts do trying to help folks in the U.S. who don't necessarily have as much China specific background, you know, explain what's what's going on and what the dynamics are here. But there are always questions of like how much to translate and, you know, where to start the clock and how deep to go. The biggest thing is, is just listen to feedback. So I write at a edited blog, uh, the Lawfare blog mostly, um, because there's good editing. And the editors are really good at making sure not only that the language is good, but they will tell me when something will go over their head. And mm. since they are policy experts, that actually acts to gauge to make sure that I'm talking at the right level for that particular audience. So go with edited forums. That's the key. A good editor will make your writing much stronger and highlight all the things that need explaining. Cool. So let's come to our first main topic, uh, 5G, telecom, and uh, Huawei. So in one of your recent lawfare pieces that you mentioned, you wrote that telecom networks are special. So Nick, why are telecom networks special? Telecom networks are special because they're actually designed with sabotage built in. So <laughs> in the 80s and the 90s, there were legal requirements that telephone networks be wiretappable, that it be very easy for law enforcement to just 
flip a switch and listen in on conversations because it was very easy for them in the old days of analog and they wanted to keep that as the digital transition went through. And so as a consequence, the telecommunications infrastructure is designed with wiretapping as a feature. And if you are on the receiving end of a nation state attacker, the goal of that nation state attacker is often to turn on the existing functionality. So we've seen this happen. So we know, for example, that sometime in 2004, somebody broke into Vodafone Greece, managed to enable the wiretapping functionality and was wiretapping journalists and politicians and many other high profile targets. And so since telecommunications is designed to be wiretapped, is very powerful when wiretapped, you have to make sure that the potential wiretappers of your telecommunication infrastructure are only going to be basically friendlies. Was there ever a, I'm curious uh, for a little bit of the history around this, was there ever a debate initially about whether or not this should be something that should be built into these um, uh, built into these networks? Or was it kind of always a given that you'd want the uh, domestic police to be able to listen into folks they get warrants for? Well, this is before my time, so I wasn't around for the debates. But we do see the same debate again and again. It's just these days, we in the security field are much more vocal about, oh my God, this is a bad idea, see these previous incidents. So can you elaborate a little on the fear that a foreign telecom supplier would have going into a different country as opposed to just working with domestic suppliers? So let's actually use a concrete example. I believe that the Chinese government has no incentive to behave better than the U.S. government. So let's do things that the U.S. government has done to communications equipment. The NSA has intercepted communication equipment in transit and sabotaged it. Of course, this was network equipment destined for Syria. So uh, if I was the NSA, I'd do that. But that means if you're a subject of Chinese spying, you have to worry about Chinese equipment being intercepted and sabotaged. The NSA managed to convince RSA data security to use a Trojan standard, which means you have to worry about Chinese companies accepting Trojan code based on government pressure. You have. Can you, can you go a little deeper into the uh, into the RSA story? I just think it's a it's an absolutely fascinating one. So the RSA story is there's this standard for random number generators. And now random number generators are special because they aren't actually random. So the idea with the cryptographic random number generator is you have some internal state and you get a series of numbers that look random. Now, there was this standard that was promulgated by the NSA, although mostly quietly, that was flawed that if you knew how the magic numbers were constructed in the generator and somebody told you the output of a generator, you could go backwards and figure out what the previous numbers were that the random number generator generated. And since a very common motif is generate a random key, 
use that to encrypt all the data, and then you need to also do some other random operations. The NSA could just see that other randomness go backwards and decrypt the key. And this standard was known flawed. Everybody knew this was a bad idea. It was bad performance. The backdoor was identified at the time, yet RSA data security accepted a reported $10 million to quietly introduce this into their libraries and make it the standard and then used additional features designed to make the backdoor more vulnerable to those who knew the key. Jeez. Seems pretty cheap. Yeah. Um, well, what's the inflation rate on 30 pieces of silver? I, I don't get that joke. Sorry. Uh Pontus Pilate was uh, betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. This is this is where my Jewish Old Testament education gets the worst of me. Um, well, I'm an atheist. <laughs> I've just taken Bible as lit. <laughs> um, OK, so we've been running through some examples of the U.S. Uh, of, of what the NSA has done. Sabotage equipment in transit. You write bribe companies to deploy sabotage standards. Um, and then the idea of compelling U.S. cooperation of, of companies in intelligence activities. So mind sharing some anecdotes of that, uh, of that tactic that the NSA has employed? So that's uh, the Yahoo case. So Yahoo was compelled by the NSA to provide data on people without a warrant. That the NSA goes, these are non-US persons outside the US. We don't need a warrant. See this law. Yahoo fought this as far as possible and was facing massive contempt fines before they basically ended up having to yield. And so this set the precedent, and there's other laws as well that say if the NSA requires a US company to cooperate for something that is legal under U.S. law, because the U.S. law says this, uh, the company has to cooperate no matter how much they dislike it. And I would imagine that we should expect no less of the Chinese government. So there's a quote by the RSA uh, chief technologist after uh, this this whole story of the NSA building in a backdoor was revealed, saying, quote, we should have been more skeptical of the NSA's intentions. We trusted them because they're charged with the security for the U.S. government and U.S. infrastructure. I, I question just how skeptical the Huawei ploy employees are of the Chinese government's intentions. And it doesn't matter that even if you're very skeptical especially with the Chinese government, this is a government that, let's face it, is doing uh, ethnic cleansing effectively in the West. If you're skeptical of the Chinese government, uh, congratulations, enjoy your prison cell. So so what Huawei has been trying to do over the past uh, few months and years, I guess, is is by is try to mitigate the concerns of, of uh, different intelligence agencies around the world by doing uh, submitting their code for review and promising that they're independent. Can you talk a little bit about the different rounds that different governments have been doing and the ability or not? to actually prove that you are delivering secure systems? The British are the greatest example. So while the other English-speaking countries, US, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, have said no to Huawei kit, 
Britain is trying to buy Huawei because it's cheap. And they've come up with an agreement where Huawei is opening their stuff to examination by the British government. The problem is, is this has shown there can be no technical assurance. So the latest report from the British has shown that the Huawei build system is non-deterministic. So you can't tell whether the code you inspected is the thing on the device. The code is a mess. So you can't really tell whether there's backdoors or not because some backdoors are indistinguishable from a code screw up. And as a consequence, oh, and of course, you can't tell whether the update is just a security fix or included additional sabotage. So is this um, the, the findings that they've rendered on the Huawei telecom system? Is that just a function of the way telecom systems work, that they are so complicated that it's impossible to know whether or not updates are actually um, legitimate or not? Or is your guess that there's actually something intrinsic to the way uh, the Huawei code was written that this stuff you can't make uh, uh, hard and fast uh, calls on? Well, it's multiple things. First of all, Huawei is typical code, and typical code is really bad. And with typical code, it's really hard to tell whether you have deliberate sabotage or not, because you can do a lot of sneaky things to sabotage a system that look like mistakes. So even if you could find the mistakes, you can't say whether it's deliberate or not. This is just mm. how computers work. Okay, so so we have this inability to figure out whether or not potential mistakes are actually uh, more nefarious. So so then what's the conclusion that the, the UK government has, uh, has drawn? The UK government hasn't actually done the final conclusion. That as far as I can tell, the UK government is still trying to justify the use of Huawei equipment in their telecommunications. And if you actually look at their report, you have basically no other conclusion that you can't do this with technical assurance. It really comes down to political assurance. Are you confident that the Chinese government will behave better than the US government has? And frankly speaking, I just look at the Chinese government and I go, you want a Wawa? <laughs> so is there, um, talking about the way the U.S. government has uh, behaved, do you have any sense that uh, post Snowden, post these um, uh, these big revelations, that the, the modus operandi of the NSA has, has evolved in any way to be less aggressive with respect to these sorts of things? Or is this... Um, are these sorts of um, actions, particularly the ones that go outside of the U.S., not necessarily going to be changed all that much uh, or haven't necessarily been changed all that much over the past few years? I have no clue. This is not the sort of thing the NSA would like to talk about. And truth be told, as a U.S. citizen and I'll admit a bit of a patriot, I would hope the NSA is actually doing their job and doing this because one of the little discussed things in the Snowden revelations was that although the systems that the NSA deploys are abusive, they were not abused. So the mm. NSA has 
actually stuck to its foreign intelligence mandate. It hasn't gone off the reservation. So, for example, other countries will steal intellectual property and hand it to their local companies. The U.S. government does not, and there was no evidence of this happening. Though I remember, I do remember Love Int. I think uh, I think there were there were some NSA employees who got fired for uh, looking yes. at uh, messages of their significant others. So the NSA, um, so that sort of thing. The NSA does have a lovent problem, but any company that gets so much broad data does too. Facebook has a similar issue. Sure. And the number of cases is remarkably small. There's a specific term for it. And a lot of the cases ended up being self-reported. Oh, my God, I screwed up. Um, please don't throw me in jail. Yeah. Another interesting dynamic that you saw post-Snowden was a larger push on the part of the American tech companies to say that we're going to stand up to these uh, these requests by the intelligence agencies, which is most certainly not something you've seen in the domestic context in, in China by any means. Yes. And fortunately for U.S. hardware vendors, there isn't a clear legal requirement to sabotage. That with Yahoo, for example, there's a clear requirement for data access, but there's nothing on the law that I know of that would allow the NSA to compel Cisco to put in a backdoor or Juniper. So they've had to do more surreptitious things and techniques like intercept stuff in transit, which is why Cisco now offers you the ability to drop ship to bogus addresses, to walk over to the <laughs> Cisco factory and pick stuff up. That's really that's really interesting. So it's actually becoming a, a a selling point to make the NSA's life harder for even these American companies. Of course, it's a good selling point, sure. and fortunately, the U.S. legal system is such that there isn't a lot of ancillary pressure that the government could bring to bear. That we don't have a justice system that allows nearly the level of arbitrary imprisonment and punishment that a country like China does. That China's weak rule of law is such that a Chinese company cannot make the same assurances that a U.S. company does that they will be able to resist government pressure. Sure. So coming back to the 5G question, what's a um, uh, what's a poor country to do? So you 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 lay out three options um, with respect to 5G. Uh, just buy the stuff, uh, pick it up from, but just buy the stuff from Huawei, pick it up from Nokia and Ericsson, or avoid the hype and don't sweat 5G. So do you want to walk through um, the three options and the advantages and disadvantages of each? So the first option by Huawei Kit. This has an advantage. You're saving potentially billions of dollars. And you just have to accept that the Chinese government now has easy mode if they want to intercept the phone calls of your business leaders and your politicians. That might actually be an economically valid trade-off. How many billions of dollars of damage would the Chinese spying actually do? Eh, it might only be, let's say, $100 million. A few hundred million. Let's just buy this kit, let the Chinese government have easy mode, and be done with it. 
Because who knows, the Chinese government might compromise my carrier anyway, or might buy them out surreptitiously. So, hey, it's big money savings. Cool. Uh, so, Nick, a, a question on that. What is the what is the difference or, or how much extra work would you have to put in going from uh, the easy mode of just uh, flipping a switch to actually, uh, you know, cracking these sorts of uh, systems yourself? It really depends. So the goal would be take over the telecommunication infrastructure provider and turn on the existing wiretapping features. So. With a backdoor, it's trivial. It's congratulations, you're in, have a nice day. Without a backdoor, mm. you're going to need to do the hacking techniques to get a foothold in the door. And these companies can be pretty secure. So you have to play your A game. You have to potentially risk zero day exploits. Uh, it's going to be a lot of work. But it is the kind of high value target that a nation state is going to spend the work to compromise. So I just spent two years at a master's program in China and China studies and doing it, I watched a lot of ITE, but didn't necessarily gain too many hard skills. Had I only known that at the University of San Francisco's new master in applied economics, I could have learned something to actually make me super employable. You know, R, SQL, machine learning, all that good stuff you actually see on job listings in Silicon Valley and Zhongguanzun, not necessarily have you watched all of Wanlisong. So in this program, you can study the economics of platforms, auctions, and business strategy at the same time as you learn the tools of econometrics, experimental design, and machine learning. Plus, for all those non-U.S. students out there, this program is designated STEM, so you can apply for a three-year extension on your student visa and keep working in the U.S. after you graduate. To learn more and get an application fee waiver, go to usfca.edu slash Jordan. So I guess my question for, in general is that, like, at the end of the day, can't nation states just get anywhere they want to in the end? And this is just, you know, saving them the, I don't know, $10 million in salary of however X many, uh, you know, information technology specialists they're going to need to keep on uh, on staff for this sort of thing? Not necessarily. Sometimes it really does take the A game from people like the NSA, where they have privileged locations in the network where they can directly attack people from within the network. And these days, information security is getting a lot better. And as a consequence, mm -hmm. getting exploits that you can use for these sorts of things is harder and harder. And every time you use a zero-day exploit, you run the risk of it being compromised. And if it's compromised, the value goes to zero because everybody patches. So, for example, the market value for a remote exploit for an iPhone these days is $1.5 million. And if you target the mm. wrong person and the exploit gets captured, your exploit is now worth zero because somebody like me borrowed my girlfriend's old iPhone, handed it to a colleague, Bill Marzak, who captured the exploit. And so we get things like... Uh, um, cost of replacement iPod Touch, $250. Knowing that I burned a or helped burn a million dollar exploit used by a repressive Middle Eastern country, priceless. Sure. 
all right so we have the so we have option number one just um you know buy the huawei goods save your x billions of dollars spend it on uh you know hospitals and education or uh houses in the uh in the caribbean and uh, go on your merry way so option number two is get your 5g from nokia and ericsson what are the upsides and downsides to that uh, decision the downside to going with ericsson and nokia is it's costly you are talking more money the upside is now every major intelligence country is having to go on hard mode the nsa is going on hard mode the French are going on hard mode. The Israelis are going on hard mode. The Chinese are going on hard mode. The Russians are going on hard mode. Everybody is going on hard mode because Ericsson and Nokia are uh, Swedish and Finnish respectively. And so they will just give the one finger salute to any intelligence agency that's going, hey, sabotage, backdoor, etc. And so you are dealing with the greatest level of not technical assurance, but political assurance possible for building your network infrastructure. All right. So option number three, we have avoid the hype and don't deal with 5G anyways. So, um, you know, there have been plenty of uh, Paneans to the glories of 5G and how it's going to enable an entirely new future and speeds are going to be 100x what you're used to. And I can uh, live stream a virtual violin teacher and have autonomous drones flying uh, hamburger bites into my mouth. But uh, you're not quite as sanguine as some of the industry analysts on this uh, technology. So uh, if not, why exactly do you uh, have a little uh, more pessimistic take? So... There's the better administration, and the 5G kit is a lot better at scaling to a lot of devices. But the big advantage from 5G is adding some new frequency bands. And most of those frequency bands are very high frequency, so they don't travel very far. So in order to really get more bandwidth, what you have to do is have a lot more cells, because we're already at the point of what we call the Shannon limit that for a given amount of frequency and a given power of transmission, how much information can we send and receive? And so all the big bandwidth advantage, all the, oh my God, this is going to stream so much data so quickly, is taking advantage of these new frequency bands and adding a lot more smaller cells. And so adding cells you can do in 4G. Going with smarter antennas, you can do with 4G. The only thing that 5G gets in that space is the ability to use these additional frequency bands. But these frequency bands are really only usable in urban environments because they don't propagate as well. You can just literally close a door and lose a lot of the 5G signal. So what are you uh, most excited about, if anything at all, from the raw of this of this new hardware? Um, it's cool. So it is talking greater peak bandwidth. In an urban environment, say like New York City, 5G will be great. It will be a way of getting a lot more bandwidth to a lot more people. But if you are, say, a country that is less urbanized, the new bands are not going to be hugely advantageous. And so the question is, does the 
improved management infrastructure and stuff like that justify the investment? Or would you be better off waiting a couple of years that you might want to roll out 5G, but slow roll it? So wait a little while before you go all in. Because after all, AT&T has shown that you just slap a 5GE name on your 4G service and people will somehow think it's improved. Can you explain what uh, the advantages in terms of management mean? So it's just that uh, 5G, they've gone with a modern computing interface for how everything goes together. And so it's let's actually build things right and start all over. And they've done a pretty good job of that. Would you want to sum up if you're, um, you know, if I don't know how many uh, world leaders are listening to China Econ Talk, but um, which countries do you think should opt for which of the three strategies you, you laid out? So I think the Five Eyes countries and Europe and Israel should all be Ericsson and Nokia. No Huawei kit, period, full stop. They have too much to lose from Chinese spying. If I'm, say, a country in Africa, I'll probably actually go with Chinese because, well, the Chinese are doing their whole loan shark thing on the loans, too. So I've got bigger problems with the corruption that's on the Belt and Road dam that I built. And so, hey, the Chinese stuff is cheap. I'm already in bed with them. I might as well save some money and use it for my uh, Caribbean beach house. And then those sorts of countries should end up also potentially considering just put it, pushing this off a few years. Yeah, because, hey, um, I'm not a huge believer in the super connectivity future anyway, because the problem is, is wireless networks are inherently unreliable. And so you're going to need a lot of smarts on these autonomous hamburger dropping drones so that they can still work even when the network goes down. And that's going to take a lot longer than just hooking up the pipes. Also, that's going to be such that the pipes won't be necessary, that when you talk about building smarts into the end system, it doesn't actually need to communicate as much. So you need bandwidth, but you don't need as much bandwidth. Mm. Okay, so let's now turn to uh, another aspect of uh, supply chain risk. So last year, Bloomberg came out with a long and much debated article about the scheme in which the Chinese intelligence bribed, threatened, or controlled at least four subcontracted manufacturing facilities in China to modify the design of super micro motherboards. So before we dive into uh, this story, let's do a little bit of a, a semiconductor detour. Do you have any broad thoughts about the uh, Chinese semiconductor industry and what it would mean if these sorts of firms would actually be able to crack into the uh, you know top flight of the global chip space? So I'm not nearly as familiar with the semiconductor industry. The big companies are like Taiwan, TSMC for the manufacturing, and then the design, you've got Intel, AMD, a bunch of others. I don't really know what the Chinese uh, semiconductor design space is like. The fabrication is basically non-existent. That China has a very strong, robust assembly supply chain. That is, taking all the components, putting them together on circuit boards and the like. 
but they don't have a very strong fabrication supply chain. So like I know there was a recent criminal case concerning uh, industrial espionage trying to get a good modern DRAM facility in China. Okay, so so now let's turn to this uh, this this story, um, which even if it uh, turned out to be a bit of a false alarm, um, what do you think the implications were for Western firms who use Chinese parts in their technology stack um, outside of strictly telecom, as we've been uh, discussing previously? So let's first describe what the first Bloomberg piece talked about. What the Bloomberg piece described was basically a little device that you design into the motherboard, something about the size of a grain of rice, that would intercept the communication between a chip and its off-chip storage where it loads its bootstrap program. If that chip does not cryptographically verify the bootstrap program, this little interceptor would change the program and now you'd be running a sabotaged set of firmware. So a sabotaged startup. And they described an attack on the base management system that is a auxiliary chip that nonetheless has basically full control over the computer. This was scarily plausible that this is the sort of thing that if I was looking to sabotage motherboards in bulk, I would do. The problem is, is this Bloomberg piece turned out to be horribly written. So firstly, you saw that photo of the little chip on the pencil, right? That was fake. Mm. That was a photo illustration. And even these days, I have to correct people who say that Bloomberg got the chip. No, they did not. There has been nobody who succeeded in finding one of these things. So the problem is there has been no evidence that this is the sort of thing the evidence would be plain if you had a sabotaged motherboard. Everybody's looked for it. Nobody has found it because it described exactly where to look. Worse, Bloomberg came out with another piece a week or two later saying about sabotage in Ethernet jacks. Now, whereas the first Bloomberg story was disturbingly plausible, this Ethernet story was basically bovine fecal matter because an Ethernet jack is what we call a passive device. It doesn't have electronics in it that are chips. It just has inductors and other devices that are not smart. And in fact, it doesn't even have a power connection to power a chip, let alone the sort of chip you need to intercept the network and manipulate the network. So that story was just clearly bogus. And Bloomberg just basically took a story that was disturbingly plausible, did a follow-on that was amazingly bogus, and has basically refused to comment further about their sourcing and everything else, despite tons of pushback from the community. So much so that those two reporters, if I see something with their byline on it, I will not trust. The problem is if I'm Chinese intelligence, I'm going to go, hey, I'm doing the time. 
this has really disrupted our reputation. Let's might as well do the crime. Interesting. Can you talk about the concept of a trusted base? Yes. So the trusted base is the part of the computing system that has to work, that has to have integrity for the system to work. Anything outside the trusted base, who cares? It's actually not trusted. So if you look at a normal computer, the trusted base is the entire motherboard and everything on it. The CPU has to trust this, that, the other. But if you look at, say, the design of the iPhone, the iPhone chip has a public key in it, and it will only load an initial bootstrap program that's signed with the corresponding private key belonging to Apple. So the trusted base for the iPhone is the small part of the TSMC manufactured CPU that does this verification, the uh the secure coprocessor, the secure enclave. And so with the iPhone, you have to trust Apple. Seriously, it's, it's Apple. You have to trust them. That is part of the trusted base. Apple's trusted base includes Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing, TSMC, which is building the actual CPU because TSMC could add in some sabotage that would allow bypassing of the checks. But beyond that, the rest of the system isn't trusted. So that CPU chip then goes to Foxconn to be assembled in China on a motherboard with a whole bunch of other components, flash, DRAM, etc. And that chip does not trust the motherboard. So Apple, in designing the iPhone, designed the iPhone in such a way that the motherboard and the assembly by Foxconn is outside the trusted base. It is actually assumed to be the enemy. And so the sort of sabotage described in the Bloomberg piece, sabotage during manufacturing and assembly of the complete system from the component chips would not work against an iPhone. And you can actually design computers that have this as well. So Apple has been shifting to this design. Intel has the hooks in their system so that you could build servers that are this way. And I think that there just needs to be a much bigger push towards making this standard operating procedure. That I like a world where... Foxconn handles the manufacturing because they do really good work, really high quality, really low cost. I just believe we should move towards a world where Foxconn does the assembly, but we don't have to trust them. Mm. So you write that uh, there needs to be a general repatriation of manufacturing for trusted base components of servers for the U.S. government and other sensitive systems. Chinese companies or those companies controlled by China or Chinese imposts should simply be forbidden. So is this another example of the hard mode versus easy mode you were talking about when it comes to spying? Yes, that supply chain attacks in particular give you a super easy mode. And there's a lot of potential for these causing a lot of damage. And since I don't want the Chinese government to have easy mode access to U.S. government systems, let's make sure that 
they can't do supply chain attacks, but at the same time, take advantage of as much manufacturing as possible within the modern outsourced supply chain. So I am quite happy if U.S. government systems are running Chinese components, just as long as the Chinese components and assembly are classed as outside the trusted base. It's interesting because one of the one of the fallouts of the trade war has been this trend towards uh, American companies shifting their supply chains outside of China, or at least making plans to do that in the um, near to medium term. So so you in general see this as a as a positive trend for security that um, making these things in, in Vietnam or uh, Bangladesh or what have you makes the Chinese government jump through a few extra hoops to to end up hacking through things. Yes. Although I will say that the hoops that you jump through are probably bribery. And I imagine that uh, China is just as good at bribing a set of personnel in a Vietnamese assembly plant as they are at placing waiters in Mar-a-Lago. Sure. Any broader thoughts on uh, China made in 2025? I'm not sure you've been following this too much, but just uh, idea on the, the idea of the broader role of governments when it comes to helping domestic companies get to the global cutting edge of various uh, technologies. I haven't looked at that in any detail except for reading the Micron uh, trade secrets criminal case. So that was a criminal case where um, China is alleged to be attempting various corporate trade secret espionage to build a DRAM fabrication plant within China. I think it's something that from China's viewpoint, they have to do that there are certain chips, notably DRAM, major CPUs, et cetera, where the U.S. effectively has a monopoly or U.S. and U.S. pressurable countries, so South Korea, et cetera. And China doesn't want a repeat of a ZTE death sentence. So ZTE violated U.S. sanctions, and the Commerce Department was going to introduce a set of sanctions against ZTE that would basically make it so they could never buy memory chips. And that would literally put ZTE out of business, period, full stop. The only thing that stopped that is somehow Trump felt that Chinese jobs were too important, but that was a warning to the Chinese. The Chinese do not want a repeat of that. And I do see that some of the push for indigenous CPU design, indigenous fabrication of chips rather than just board assembly, uh, fabrication of DRAM is about making sure that the ZTE event could not happen again. And if I was the Chinese government, I would be going very hard on that because I would not want to be ZTE'd. Any suggestions for all those policymakers or aspiring policymakers, aside from reading your blog posts, um, what else should they do to get more familiar with these sorts of technical questions? Any blog or uh, book recommendations you may have? Uh, Schneier, Bruce Schneier's books are very good and his blog that... Um, I would basically say bookmark that because anything that Schneier highlights is worth reading. The other thing is just make friends with the geeks. 
we're, we're friendly people. We like to talk. We like to explain. And so ask us, make friends with us, ask us how we would explain things. And there's, Okay, there is one stupid question. Is this a stupid question? Is a stupid question. But other than that, they aren't stupid questions. They are valid questions. So ask away. Ask us. Don't feel embarrassed to ask what you go, oh, would this be a dumb question? I don't care. It's not a dumb question if you don't know the answer to it. So ask me and I'll try to explain. And Interactive explanation is really useful because this allows a refinement of the understanding. And so this way we can explain what's going on. So make friends with the geeks. We like to talk. Nick Weaver, thanks so much for coming on China Econ Talk. Thank you very much. China Econ Talk is edited by Jason MacRonald and Kaiser Guo and is a proud member of the Seneca Network from Sup China. For other great shows on China, check out the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, the New Voices Podcast, and of course, the Seneca Podcast, now in its ninth year. Until next week. Shine